Hello, and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud with your host, cloud economist Corey Quay. This weekly show features conversations with people doing interesting work in the world of cloud, thoughtful commentary on the state of the technical world, and ridiculous titles for which Corey refuses to apologize. This is Screaming in the Cloud. This week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud is generously sponsored by DigitalOcean. I would argue that every cloud platform out there biases for different things. Uh, Some bias for having every feature you could possibly want offered as a managed service at varying degrees of maturity. Others bias for, hey, we heard there's some money to be made in the cloud space. Uh, Can you give us some of it? DigitalOcean biases for neither. Uh, To me, they optimize for simplicity. I polled some friends of mine who are avid DigitalOcean supporters about why they're using it for various things, and they all said more or less the same thing. Other offerings have a bunch of shenanigans with root access and IP addresses, and DigitalOcean makes it all simple. In 60 seconds, you have root access to a Linux box with an IP. That's a direct quote, uh, albeit with profanity about other providers taken out. DigitalOcean also offers fixed price offerings. Uh, You always know what you're going to wind up paying this month, so you don't wind up having a minor heart issue when the bill comes in. Their services are also understandable without spending three months going to cloud school. You don't have to worry about going very deep to understand what you're doing. It's click button or make an API call, and you receive a cloud resource. They also include very understandable monitoring and alerting. And lastly, they're not exactly what I would call small time. Over 150,000 businesses are using them today. So go ahead and give them a try. Uh, Visit do.co slash screaming, and they'll give you a free $100 credit to try it out. That's do.co slash screaming. Thanks again to DigitalOcean for their support of Screaming in the Cloud. Welcome to Screaming in the Cloud. I'm Corey Quinn. I'm joined this week by Joe Ruscio, who's a general partner, is it, at Heavybit Industries? That's correct, yeah. Perfect. There are general partners, there are limited partners, and I don't understand why there isn't a third tier called unlimited partners, but that's probably one of those finance things I'll never fully understand. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 surprisingly complex for uh, what is honestly a, a fairly simple thing when you get down to it. <laughs> So Heavybit Industries is an accelerator for seed stage companies, as I understand it. Uh, I'm simple, and I think in terms of cartoons. So I'm going to more or less equate that to venture capitalist. Am I wrong? Uh, no, you're not. You're not wrong. No. Uh, so yes. Yeah, so Heavybit uh, is a an accelerator, and I and I use that term. Unfortunately, these terms get kind of thrown around without a lot of distinction, but unlike a lot of what I think of as incubators that start with basically brand new companies, I mean, why, why Combinator being the canonical example, um, we focus on taking seed stage companies, that is, you know, companies that uh, have achieved some basic product market fit uh, and have raised some, you know, seed capital, which in this day and age means typically somewhere in the realm of one to even if it's uh, what, what we call mango seed rounds, like a uh, $4 million, uh, and are really starting to think about how they go to market more broadly than just having their you know friends that they get coffee with from other tech companies buy the product. If I take a look through the list of member companies that you've been involved with, it, it's sort of a who's who in some respects of with respect to various companies that you've been behind. Serverless Framework, PagerDuty, Stripe, Circle, Lightstep, LaunchDarkly, Heidi was on the first episode of this podcast. 
uh, treasure data replicated, and, and the list continues onward. These are interesting companies. What what ties them together? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and so, in addition, I mean, our in addition to the stage focus, uh, we have another very very intentful focus on uh, what what we call developer first products. Uh, and it's actually like it's a fairly broad definition, but f- fundamentally, uh, we founded the firm around this notion that uh, a lot of the technological change of the now the last. I can say almost 10 to 12 years, right? If you, or actually, I guess really more like 10 years if we look at, um, you know, Amazon, AWS coming of age is kind of like a really big inflection point. Um, but whereas historically in the, in the venture community, there was always this um, now a canard of uh, you can't make money selling to developers. And that was because historically uh, the bottleneck of getting uh, business requirements, right? Because fundamentally everything developers do at a, at a good company is about creating business value, right? Everything's kind of measured and should be measured through that lens. But historically, the bottleneck in creating business value by taking the new requirements of the business and getting them into uh, running production code was not your, your development team. It was like procuring servers, procuring space and data centers, racking and stacking. And then there's was your quarterly release schedule. So you had to wait for the next you know, waterfall release to go out. Fast forward 10 or 15 years, and, and this has now all been turned on its head, right? We have programmatic access to infrastructure. We have uh, DevOps and agile development uh, breaking things down into like super fast cycle times. And now the bottleneck of uh, implementing new business requirements into running code in production at a, a high-performing organization is literally just how fast can your developers move. Uh, and exacerbating this is that uh, every company that's going to be an enduring company is becoming a, a software company at some level. And, and by that, I, I mean, not like um, online media or, uh, or e-commerce or anything, but I mean, really like uh, companies like Coca-Cola and John Deere and Marsk Shipping are all fundamentally becoming software companies. And what that means is I don't think as much work is going into which is great and we should continue, but as much work is going into like broadening the the pool of developers uh, that are available, I don't think there will ever be enough. Uh, and that means not only is your, uh, your success going to be limited by how fast your developers move, but how much they can get done because you won't be able to hire as many as you want uh, in almost all cases. Uh, and so if you believe all that, which, which I do, uh, it follows that um, tools and products that allow you to uh, get more leverage out of your developers uh, are incredibly valuable now. And so that's we have a, a thesis and a, very, a focus on products that do and companies that do exactly that. The challenge, too, that I found as I've gone through my own business is that historically, when I'm talking about business level concerns, like the AWS bill has grown to stratospheric proportions... I haven't found that developers for this market or many other markets are good customers. There's first, it starts with, I guess, a healthy level of skepticism. From there, it turns very rapidly into a world where you're talking to people and their response is, oh, I can write a script that does that in the course of a weekend. And that's never true. (laughs) But it does tend to be a somewhat enduring reality in that people underestimate how much work it is. To the point where you finally wind up winning a developer over to become a champion, it turns out that their signing authority for budgets rounds to zero. So it, it seems like an awful lot of work to convince a developer to necessarily buy something 
only to wind up discovering that they can't. And, and yes, I realize I'm speaking in very broad generalities and painting with an extraordinarily broad brush, but that's historically been the theme that I've seen tend to emerge. Instead, you fundamentally have taken an accelerator and built exclusively towards companies that cater to that exact market. How does that work? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I guess there's a couple things. I mean, first of all, I mean, my background, I before I uh, you know, came full-time into actually on the investor advisor mentor side, um, you know, earlier this year, I spent effectively 20 years as a as a technologist, a first a engineer and uh, then a you know engineering leader, and then a, an entrepreneur building actually a company in this space with these kind of similar goals. And so I've seen um, all sides of that, right? Both as a buyer uh, and as a vendor, and and now as an investor. Um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, this this is something where there is fundamentally, I think, a maturity level for development teams and organizations, right? And and I often tell people. When I come into a company, and and not just the kind we invest in, but like any company, right? Like whatever the hottest new startup is, I can generally measure the I think maturity of their engineering team just by taking a look at their fast list, right? Like what products are you do you have in place for starters, and how many of those are you using out of house vendors? Because it go, going back again, uh, if if you believe as I do and I've seen that you you fundamentally can never hire as many developers as you want. Uh, one of our customers once referred to buying these kind of products uh, as hiring by API, and what they meant by that is if you look at products like Twilio or Stripe, you're replacing what historically you would have needed a whole team of developers and a product manager and QA and some operations engineers. Um, with an API that you make programmatic calls to, uh, Amazon AWS is a great example, right? You know, I think it's one of those things that um, more senior engineers who have been through a couple rodeos uh, and have seen what happens, you know, when you spend all your times on things that uh, you know Werner refers to it as undifferentiated heavy lifting, right? And I think that applies to all levels of the stack. So I think, I think well, high functioning teams. Uh, look, and I know I tried to do this as a as an engineering leader. Look really, really aggressively at everything on their list and ask like, which of these are competitive differentiators to us? Which of these increases the core value we deliver to our customers that no one else can? And which of these are things that I mean, I used to tell my team obviously like the customer literally does not care how curated or artisan this piece of our stack is. They don't care. All they care is that it works. So. Why spend our time there? But yes, you are right. And so it's it's interesting because one of the things we do at Heavybit, and and I think one of the things we help our member companies with specifically, is we do believe, and why we why we believe there's value in us focusing in this area, is that we do believe that there are a set of best practices uh, to take these products to market. And one of the reasons for that is because the um, I won't even necessarily say the buyers because it varies, but many times, especially in smaller companies, developers are actually the buyers. But in in, in larger organizations, they, they often aren't the final buyers, uh, which you alluded to. Uh, but this initial uh, set of champions or audience is is extremely discerning. And as, as, you know, as people with technical backgrounds, we understand that. Everybody is very skeptical of all the products with all the architecture claiming to do all kinds of crazy things. You know, scales infinitely, never fails, and we know that's all not true. 
and so we we focus with our companies on exactly how do you uh, you do two things right you build bottoms up grassroots just community around your products uh, but then you also have to pair that with like a very disciplined uh, inside or, or, or direct sales motion depending on the the kind of go to market you have. Uh, that can capture that and knows how to identify and qualify which companies are, you know, going to spin their wheels for a while trying to build it themselves. I mean, I early in my career as a vendor, I used to get very upset when somebody would tell me, like you said, "Oh, we'll build that in a script in a weekend." And then, as I became more experienced, I I stopped letting that bother me because I knew, and inside my head, it was that. Uh, those companies would be back in six months. Those projects would fail in almost all cases, and they would be back, and they would have learned their lessons, and they would buy. Yeah, if you legitimately can solve a problem in a script over the course of a weekend, maybe that's not a particularly defensible position to build a product around. Yes, yeah. I mean, you, you honest, obviously, as an entrepreneur uh, and a vendor, you have to be secure in knowing that uh, whatever people try to do themselves is going to be... Uh, you know, a pale imitation of what you're doing, and also that the you know the ongoing maintenance costs. I mean, that's the other great thing about hiring by API is unlike most of your hires, you don't have to budget or account for turnover and loss of institutional knowledge and retraining and shifting priorities because uh, you know those those products and those APIs will always be there. Uh, you know, assuming obviously that the company's healthy, but you know, will always be there and will always work the same way and. Uh, and that just takes a big load off your shoulders. There's all these hidden costs, right? And internal, the build versus buy. There are absolutely cases where build makes sense, but it's it's usually much more expensive than I think your naive or, or kind of more junior engineers often think. I would generally agree with that. So as you find yourself building companies that turn into, in some cases, runaway successes. Do you find that it's there are certain tells early on that, that differentiate, I guess, winners from losers? I mean, I'm not, I'm not first. I'm not asking for secret information on how you wind up evaluating companies, but I, I guess I'm wondering if you're starting to see a recurring theme that differentiates the companies that build something that can endure versus companies that build something that AWS releases a feature the week later that winds up effectively destroying their entire value proposition. Yeah, yeah, uh, and so it's it's interesting. There's there's actually um, there's actually a couple good questions in there. So just to focus on there, there is particularly with developer focused or IT or infrastructure focused products, you know, which we we cover all of those, uh, especially in the last say, I don't know, I want to say like five to six years, right? Because you know my company, so I found a company called Labrado. Uh, which was the first uh, hosted telemetry company. There's a bunch of other great companies in the space now. Um, and we started that in 2011. Uh, and I actually had built a previous product starting in 2009. And at the time, you know, AWS was very basic, right? You got object storage, uh, instance, you know, a small number of EC2 instances, not the like infinite alphabet soup that they have now. Uh, you know, load balancers. Uh, RDS was MySQL only. Oh yeah, and, and even at the time, looking back, I still remember feeling like this is a lot of services I need to learn. I'm never going to be able to wrap my head around all of that. I look back ten years and laugh at myself. <laughs> yeah, literally, there's like, man, there's ten services. How can I remember all these? So yeah, so I mean, at the time, so then there was this, um, you know, Cambrian explosion of uh, all these uh, different. You know, there were like five different companies that were doing hosted Redis at the time, right? As just as a like as a ludicrous, you know, absurd example, right? A pathological case. 
Um, but then as, as we all know now, like AWS started moving up the stack and the other cloud providers have, have followed. Um, and so now they're offering all kinds of managed services, very sophisticated managed services in some cases. And then um, basically any kind of flavor of, you know, hosted uh, open source that you would run on some server somewhere. And, you know, if it reaches like a su- sufficient enough market size, um, you know, I fully expect, uh, you know, reInvent, I think, will be done by the time this podcast is out. But I, uh, you know, the information is reporting that, you know, they'll have a MongoDB hosted service. So we'll see. Yeah, I've heard that rumor a lot myself. I mean, and frankly, let's be honest, Mongo is a terrific choice uh, to store your data in. Not my data, that stuff's valuable, but for your data, absolutely, go nuts. <laughs> yep, but, you know, Amazon, as you know, uh, is, is, is quote-unquote customer-obsessed, and, and that's definitely a, a, a project that I think has passed its threshold. Uh, but it's a great example, yeah, that you, you can be guaranteed... Uh, that Amazon will, you know, continue to roll out higher and higher level functionality. So, um, a lot of times, you know, we do spend a lot of time talking about and with our companies, um, because again, go, okay. So the point of all that was seven or eight years ago, it was fairly easy, <laughs> relatively speaking, to build a small business because you just provisioned some EC2 servers, ran something on top of it, and then charged people to manage the thing you were running on top of EC2 instances. Um, you know, it, this that is effectively gone. I mean, I don't know. You might be able to run a lifestyle business with a particular niche flavor of something, but yeah, click uh, click a marketplace button, receive configured and running WordPress or equivalent. There's always going to be a niche market for that, but it's it's not exactly the growth industry of the future either. Right, right. And so then you have to look for okay, what is your what value are you going to bring? And so I, I I generally tell new entrepreneurs at least two high level things. One, it's kind of the equivalent of like, um, you know, what's that line I think with the, from the princess bride, like never start a land war in Asia. Right. Uh, well never compete with AWS on hosting compute, like just period, you know, whether it's like some VPS service or again, hosting, whatever, like do not compete with AWS on hosting compute because they will just obliterate you. Azure, this does not apply to you. Yes, yeah, the, yeah. The main exception being if you are have a, a billion dollar war chest uh, and you know thirty, forty years history as of software development. Um, but outside of the you know two other companies that are already doing that, uh, no one else should. Um, the other thing, which is probably much more, a little more subtle, but I think probably much more important because that's uh, you know not hosting compute is. Uh, is kind of an easy one. AWS, uh, you know, I've heard this saying, which which stuck with me, you know, four or five years ago. Amazon is great at plumbing; they are terrible at painting. And so, I think what that means is, you know, usually you talk about an eighty twenty solution. I think you know, Amazon and the way they develop software, they're very good at identifying basic needs of users. Uh, they're very good at putting out. Uh, a serviceable basic solution. Um, they've historically not been great at supporting documentation, the UI, UX to drive it. Uh, and so what we tell all of our companies is there, you know, there's this room and there still is. And I, uh, I kind of, especially now believe there probably always will be for what we call premium solutions, right? So if you, you pick your niche and you go deep on it, uh, then you can be certain that, AWS will have a version of it at some point. 
But if you're doing your job and you're executing, uh, it won't ever uh, it won't ever be as sophisticated as yours because you're going to continue working on it. You're always going to be ahead, uh, and you can deliver a just better, more seamless uh, product UX and, and customer success experience. Um, and so, you know, again, uh, you know, taking LaunchDarkly as, as an example, I expect it at Amazon at some point will have a feature flagging service. Uh, I expect it will be basic. And if you're a tiny company with simple needs, uh, it will be more than fine. Um, I don't think LaunchDarkly will lose a lot of their enterprise customers to it. Absolutely. And, and I think that you'll see a basic version of everything. I mean, you have Gremlin for advanced chaos engineering, or you can use the basic service and just run your stuff in US East 1. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's like the original managed service, which, by the way, I uh, love your the T-shirts. I got mine in the mail the other day. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. I thought the, US, the subtle U.S. East one on the side of the dumpster was a, a nice touch. It used to be much less subtle. And uh, to be clear, I don't blame the T-shirt vendor for any of this, but they wanted to take the arrowhead off of the Amazon logo and they wanted to sort of fuzz the U.S. East one in the interest of not getting sued. And... I don't believe that AWS would ever sue something like that for a charity t-shirt that benefits kids with cancer. But by the same token, they said, cool, great, we're on board with that. Can you get Amazon to commit to that in writing? And yeah, you can imagine how that conversation went from there. So I fuzzed the logo and called it a day. Yeah, I think that's a very pragmatic decision. We do what we must. So one thing that I find fascinating as you continue to look at the ecosystem, it, it's not just the relatively basic features that uh, initial service launches wind up bringing along, but there seems to almost be a sense of, I don't want to say delight because that's too strong, but inevitability where there's a big keynote at reInvent, which again, as of this recording is next week where they announce a whole bunch of services. And then my favorite macabre game that I play at reInvent is walking around the expo hall and look at who just had their business model Sherlocked out from under them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's just a, well, a good example going back. You know, I mean, last year uh, when uh, AWS announced not just one, but two flavors of managed Kubernetes, right? Like uh, EKS and Fargate. And there were, I'm not going to name anybody, but there were, I think, at least two or three vendors uh, on the expo floor who were literally selling a managed Kubernetes service on Amazon. Just, you know, they were, they provision EC2 instances, they ran Kubernetes on it for you, and you pushed in their containers. And so it's some format of a, a platform as a service. Uh, so, you know, I never had a chance to talk to those people before, but had I, you know, going prior to that, I mean, that's exactly what I would have told them would happen, right? Uh, at some point. Yeah. When you have a technology as hot as Kubernetes showing up in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, you can pretty much bet that all the big players are going to be there. And when you, it's almost like the olden days of web hosting. When you talk about the small web hosting shops with the rise of things like Rackspace and later in time, Amazon and DigitalOcean, the answer became very clear that so how are you going to compete? And their answer was always the same. Excellent customer service, which means we don't really know how we're going to compete, but that's an answer no one can argue with. Yeah, there's there's two answers that come up. Like that's one. And then the other one is multi-cloud, which uh, is also uh, not a real answer. And yeah, going back again, the answer has to be, it has to be something that through product and UI UX, uh, you can significantly differentiate. 
Uh, and I think, for instance, taking another area, you know, my background and probably just some bias there, but monitoring is a, a great example. Uh, I mean, when we first launched our product, uh, CloudWatch was extremely primitive. It was uh, two weeks of retention at one or five minute resolution, uh, extremely basic UI, and uh, not all the services had metrics, right? I mean, it was like... I didn't realize that you launched three weeks ago. Ah. <laughs> well, I've, I've heard, uh, at least, that it's, uh, it's made dramatic strides, especially in the last couple of years. Uh, but then, you know, you compare that to, um, again, and they're doing a great job. And for, I think, basic entry-level people, that's fine. But then if you compare that to products like, you know, even, you know, New Relic or Datadog or, you know, the work SolarWinds has been doing and uh, it's night and day. And if you are a, again, if you, if you're measuring your kind of uh, downtime uh, and outages in terms of dollars, um, it is well worth investing in good observability and monitoring tools that deliver like a far more holistic, integrated, comprehensive experience than uh, CloudWatch does. Not to, I mean, I, I actually know some people in the CloudWatch team and they're great and they're, they're doing a good job for... As do I, after the article I wrote a couple of weeks back that more or less savaged them. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I, to be clear, I hope and trust that in the not very distant future, I'll get the opportunity to write a article or blog post or similar with the theme of it's better now. I really do hope it is. There's always going to be a place for monitoring vendors if for no other reason than you need to have something outside of the platform your production environment runs upon in order to tell you when it's experiencing issues. There's just a philosophical story there. But yeah, right now, there's so much more that needs to happen that I'm not convinced that CloudWatch is ever going to provide a comprehensive story around but there is, at least as of the date of this recording, a lot it could be doing that it isn't. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But again, it, it, it just all comes back down uh, to, you know, as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneur and a founder, um, you need to be obsessed with product. You need to be obsessed with user experience. Uh, and you need to make sure that you're always delivering some value above and beyond what a kind of basic three-letter service from Amazon does. And you have to make sure that... You know that for the majority of customer use cases, or at least customers with like real purchasing power, uh, what you're offering above and beyond is real value, uh, or the the thing that you're building has the opportunity to provide that. Because again, going back to uh, you know platform as a service or hosting compute or even databases, there's not really a lot. Like Amazon, if 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 the primary yeah the primary interface to your product is a is a, a simple API, and there's not really a lot of need for any kind of management or orchestration layers, like you're, you're probably going to be in trouble. And that's really, I think, the lesson that we can take from a lot of this, where basic building blocks to weave into services have always been Amazon's strength. Now they're trying to move up the stack into higher level managed services that solve specific business problems. And on the one hand, that's really neat to see. On the other it's not historically in their core DNA. And if you have sophisticated requirements, I don't see that there's necessarily going to be something coming from AWS that takes the market by storm. If you need a basic thing that checks a box for some random higher level service, yes, there's a great chance that AWS will release that. Will it wind up being a nuanced exploration of the space? Probably not on day one. And as a result, I feel like there's 
room for a wave of innovation, I guess. That's uh, the the, bow, the waves breaking ahead of the bow of the ship that is Amazon. And there's always going to be, to some extent, a story for partners and vendors in that space. That said, I think that anyone who's taking what they're building today and effectively not iterating on that in any meaningful way will not have a business in five years. Do you think that's a fair characterization? Oh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I think honestly, if if anything, what's happened uh, is that it's just that the, the, the bar has been raised. So the two things have happened. One, it's become much, much easier to start, actually start a company. Um, you know, I mean trying to hire engineers in Silicon Valley aside. Uh, but other than that, it's, it's, it's much easier to start a company than it's ever been, uh, particularly with things like Stripe Atlas, for example, uh, where it's basically like uh, you know, AWS for starting companies. Um, and I, but on the flip side, I think particularly, again, in this, in this niche of infrastructure, developer-oriented products, I think the bar has been raised uh, for... Uh, what you need to not only initially deliver, uh, but also like the the c- continued uh, kind of uh, execution on product and just continuously improving your product. And you know that's as especially for consumers, that's fundamentally a good thing, right? Uh, I just think whereas historically it was probably a little easier to rest on your laurels once you had uh, created your category and established your leadership there. Uh, now you know, even if you're the 800-pound gorilla in the category you created, if you don't keep innovating and building, um, you know they are coming for you. Uh, and so, you know, I think as long as you're aware of that, that's not a bad thing. I feel like we spent a fair bit of time talking about AWS specifically, which I think is fair. But something that has been on my mind lately, since I just got back from a trip outside of the bubble of the Bay Area, which is a good thing, because as of this recording, that bubble is full of smoke, I encountered something that sort of surprised me, in that if you'd asked me a month ago to say, all right, what is the second cloud, if not Amazon, that's going to, uh, I guess, continue to, to win in the market, I would have opened with GCP. And having been outside of this I guess, ridiculous technical uh, echo chamber. It, I, I've completely done a 180 on that. At, at this point, I firmly believe Azure is the second cloud, not necessarily from a story of technical capability, which is where I went wrong before. I fell into the engineering trap of believing that capabilities are going to define the future, but rather in the ability to meet customers where they are rather than telling them where they should be. Is that something that I guess has risen to your level of attention as far as as you explore various multi-cloud stories, as you go through the world and see, I guess, what real companies are using? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, I mean, by the way, like you're abs- you're 100% correct. And I mean, there was actually literally just uh, some earnings results uh, where, uh, yeah, it's not even close. I mean, um, I forget Microsoft is like four or five X uh, Azure is four or five x the size of GCP. Uh, you know, GCP is quote unquote only. I think it was one point six billion. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, when when you know, and again, you know, we've been just like you said, you say talking about AWS a lot, but I just kind of mentally substitute that for you know viable cloud computing, which I lump in absolutely Azure and 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 also Google with. Um, and as you know, someone who was a uh, a buyer, uh, you know, from about 2008 until uh, really the last 10 years, uh, so for the whole ride up, um, 
I remember initially being very excited when GCP first started coming out uh, and and with the you know the the continuous load balancers which could do crazy things that at the time ELB couldn't do and so there was a lot of promise on technical capabilities but um, yeah I think <laughs> meet customers where they are I saw uh, someone retweeted something just recently which just really resonated where it said um, you know the, there's a customer talking to GCP and says you know we want X and GCP says great but we're going to sell you Y because that's a better way to do it. And then customer says, great, we're going to go buy X from Microsoft, right? Uh, and I think, you know, there's this concept called, a, a, I believe it's an Overton window, right? Where I think what Google has always struggled with and I'm becoming like less and less, uh, they had a very recent, obvious executive shakeup, I think trying to address this. Uh, you know, Diane Green is is on her way out and they've brought in someone from, Literally Oracle, which is like the least Google company you can think of. True. And, and their cloud is going super well. So that was absolutely a smart move. Oh, yeah. Smart and cynicism aside, it probably is the right direction. Yeah. Uh, but I think the, the problem is, and, and I mean, if you look historically, right? So when, um, when, when GCP launched, right, they launched with Google App Engine, right? Which is a great example of something way ahead of its time. Uh, you know, it literally like a platform as a service. Uh, not only way ahead of its time in terms of saying, hey, you can just ship us your app code and we're going to run it in these things we call containers, which nobody knows about yet, uh, and just abstract away all of the infrastructure, servers, instances, everything. Uh, also, it only runs in Python because we as Google have decided that's the best language. Um, and you know, I think there was some surprise when you know two years later, Amazon was roundly trouncing them just by selling Linux, hosted Linux servers, right? Um, and yeah, I think they've gotten incrementally better, but I think it's very hard for an organization that large and that ingrained and being literally, and, I, and I'm not saying the snarky, they are like the smartest people in the room, right? Like if you, if you look at things like, you know, Spanner and, and again, like the load balancer they have and these other pieces of technology, they, they have by far the best cloud tech, uh, but they just don't, grok fundamentally as an organization and I, I know they're trying to get there as to how to sell the enterprise which is you have to understand the problem the enterprise there's two things right one is which everybody knows you know it's understand the problem your customer is trying to solve that's number one that's i don't say easy but a lot of people get that the second thing that's a little trickier is you have to understand and this goes back to the overton window how far out of their current comfort zone they're willing to go to solve that problem and i think that's has been google's Achilles heel is they've always, because they've got the most crazy science fiction, best way to do this, that is decades ahead of what their customers have been thinking. They've tried to pull them from, you know, the, the huge legacy stacks directly fast forward 20 years and all the learnings Google's had into the new thing. And a lot of people just can't make that jump. Uh, and then on the flip side, you have Microsoft, not only that I think more deeply understands that, but has just this massive enterprise sales channel with all the relationships in place that they've built up over decades uh, with just the Windows and, and Office franchises. And then doing very... I mean, what Microsoft has done the last couple of years, I think is just incredible. Uh, the executive team there is... it's. I mean, between things like .NET Core, uh, acquiring GitHub, uh, running Linux... I mean, there is literally a... Microsoft Linux distribution for some of their IoT stuff, right? Which, and, you know, I'm old, 
uh, that, you know, I, I used to be, I was in on slash dot and the FUD wars, right? Like the, the, the great FUD wars of the late nineties. And, uh, I mean, if you had, if you had told me the kind of thing, the moves that Microsoft is making today, I, no one would have believed it. Not, not in a million years. Um, and so that's why I think they're, I think the window is rapidly closing on Google being able to, uh, I think they'll be fine, but in terms of being like a massive cloud player, they, uh, they need to figure it out quick. They do. And I think that the window, I think you're right when you say that window is closing. There's also a certain lack of awareness that I'm picking up on from understanding how their customers view the world. Google historically has always been much more interested in what it's building than what it's shipping. And as a result, they they tend to deprecate things relatively haphazardly from the outside world. That scares the crap out of enterprises who are in many cases running 30 or 40 year old systems to solve certain things. No one is going to build something that has the potential of lasting that long on top of a cloud provider that has shown a willingness to change directions mid-course. And I, I don't think that there's fully an awareness that culturally at Google at this point that of how damaging that is to their reputation. There's also, of course, the whole separate argument of when you're trying to sell something to someone and you imply that they're incompetent because they don't see the world the same way that you do, that's a sort of a really crappy sales pitch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think both of those things, it's kind of, in one way, it's kind of fascinating because, you know, Google, the um, consumer company, right? Because, for instance, I, I don't think they've actually shut down or canceled any cloud services, really, but there have been a few. <laughs> I have a list somewhere. I don't have them off the top of mind, but there have been, uh, I think there are three or four so far. Yeah. Well, I guess could actually just random question. I mean, so like, uh, was SimpleDB still running? Yes. You can still get it on new accounts even. You have to request it, I believe, and they will do their damnedest to steer you away from it, but you can get it. Okay. Well, there's a good contrast right there, I guess. But I think even more kind of interesting is um, I do suspect that now their their proclivity, which in isolation is is probably the right thing, but to shut down consumer services, uh, whether it's you know Google Plus or Wave or RSS feed, like I there you can't help but have some of that just because of the way brands work in people's mind, right? You can't help but have some of that carry over to the cloud side, absolutely, uh, where people are like, regardless, at the highest level, this is a company that is super comfortable to just do things that are better for them and shut these things down rather than have like a handful of engineers continue to work on, you know, RSS feeds. Right. Um, and there's no way, uh, and if there are already examples on them shutting down cloud services, that just even makes it worse. So yeah, I think, I do think that's, that's absolutely, uh, absolutely a problem that they're going to have to fix and they're going to have to be real explicit with their customers. And yeah, I mean, the, Treating your customers or or implying that they're in some way incompetent is yeah absolutely the worst sales tactic. I think the best people like the best salespeople they understand the problem that's trying to be solved. They position the way their product solves that problem and they sell it. But they also again understand how far out of the current comfort zone they can pull the customer before it's just not tractable. Even if it's technically the best solution. Um, if you require the entire or like human, you know, there's just some basic lizard brain stuff here, right? Uh, for, for perpetuation of the species, we're only going to go so far out of our comfort zone at any one instance in time. 
Um, the interesting thing being, though, is you can, uh, and this is what I think the most successful companies do, even if they know ultimately the customer needs to end up to that place they're not comfortable enough to move to now, you build in your product and sell it in such a way that you you get them in, and then over time, you get them more comfortable and you move them over. And I think what AWS has with you know EC2 instances and then ECS and now EKS and and they can bring in lift and shift customers into EC2. And over time, they can, you know, any of the cloud providers can do this. They all have the pieces, but you can bring them into instance compute with lift and shift and slowly get them dipping their toes into containers and Kubernetes. And before you know it, they'll be, you know, they'll be doing serverless stuff, right? And I think everybody wants to do the new things. It's just what they can do at any one point in time. Throw away your 15-year-old billing system and rewrite the entire thing using this new paradigm. Yeah. You, you get that makes us money, right? It, it becomes a different story. Yeah, and you can never lose sight of the fact, and it's tough, especially like you said in the in the bubble, because yeah, in Silicon Valley, which absolutely is a bubble, right? I mean, people are like, "You're using tech that's 18 months old," like, ugh. Uh, and you know, the vast majority of the world, and I think this is the right way to look at it too. Like, software exists to create business value, and you know, it if it's doing that, it really doesn't matter what it's written in or how it's hosted. If it's creating business value, uh, I mean, switching costs is a real thing. Uh, and so, yeah, I think you you have to expect that those systems will be around for a very long time. Last question for you. How do I get you folks to fund Twitter for Pets, the most innovative social network for four-legged animals? Yeah, I've heard you've been refining your pitch there. I mean, I guess, yeah, for us, like I said, we're... we're uh, uh, Heavybit has a very, uh, you know, developer infrastructure-centric approach. So... I guess uh, would need to be uh, API first. We need to understand the, the the Twitter for Pets API and how it's going to glue every consumer app on the planet together, and then probably need some kind of uh, understanding about how we'd not take the same path Twitter did with their API. <laughs> There's probably a very unfortunate story that's up in there somewhere. Yeah. The yeah, the, the fun part about a lot of this is that it also turns up uh, turns out being a I guess, an ongoing battle, not just to get noticed and discovered. So if people want to hear more of your sage thoughts, where can they find you? Yeah, that's that's great. So, I mean, one of the things we do at Heavybit uh, also, I mean, in addition to working with companies and accelerators, uh, we do a ton of work just around uh, trying to level up the entire community on this, whether our companies or not. So if you go to heavybit.com, we have a just incredible curated library uh, we do both, uh, you know, basically we, we are constantly having, uh, speakers come in one-off events. We run targeted conferences. We call dev guild on things like, you know, pricing or product marketing or enterprise readiness of products. Um, but all these, we do very high fidelity recordings and transcripts. Uh, so you can come in just, and it's, it's literally, I think at this point, you know, hundreds of, uh, different things. So, I mean, any anybody who's building products in this space, you go check it out. It's completely free. Uh, we have a, a regular newsletter you can sign up for on the site called uh, for both Heavybit and DevTools Digest, which we kind of give weekly updates, just interesting things in the space. Uh, and then finally, I guess more kind of personally, um, I've recently entered the the wonderful world of podcasting, uh, and so I, I have a brand new podcast. We just launched the first episode a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's called High Leverage, and it's really just a series of conversations 
focused on like the kind of culture and processes and tooling that the the highest performing software teams use uh you know in this day and age and if it can tempt any of your listeners uh we have uh we were i was fortunate enough to record an episode with you recently that you know will be coming out very soon perfect well i look forward to seeing that come out Thank you again for spending the time to speak with me today. I know that you're a busy person. Yeah, your pleasure is all mine. It's great, 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 great chatting. So I look forward to the next time. <laughs> Likewise. This has been Joe Ruscio of Heavy Bit Industries. I'm Corey Quinn, and this is Screaming in the Cloud. This has been this week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud. You can also find more Corey at ScreamingInTheCloud.com or wherever fine snark is sold. 